Katie. Hi, Olivia. I have a very important question for you. Ooh. Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights? <laughs> Jane Eyre? Duh. Why are you so wrong? <laughs> wrong? Wrong! Obviously Never. Wuthering Heights! What? No. Obviously! Come on. Jane Eyre for life! <laughs> if you're a teenager, what is there better than Wuthering Heights? It is peak teenager. I read Jane Eyre in junior high, and I loved it. Well, how old were you when you read Wuthering Heights? Never. <gasps> Your vote is invalid. I know. <laughs> Do you know why? Because the cover of your book oh, was, was terrible. It was the. It looked like a romance novel or something. Yeah, terrible. And cover. so it turned me off. So I never read it. Oh, I love them both. But when I was a librarian, the high school students were assigned to read either *Wuthering Heights* or *Jane Eyre*. They could choose. So students would come in and ask us often, like, which one should I read? And it became this comedic running battle with another woman and I who worked the front desk together, usually. <laughs> she was Team Jane Eyre. <laughs> well, you need to read Wuthering Heights. I can't. The cover still haunts me. Read a different edition. <laughs> I've, I've watched the movie. I'm going to go find you a good edition of Wuthering Heights. Okay. I mean, if I can sit through the worst musical ever written, which was based on Wuthering Heights... And still love Wuthering Heights. You can get over a cover. I'm just saying. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think this is really fascinating because what makes this battle, that is a pretty common argument yeah. um, in English literature, is the fact that these two authors who wrote sort of iconic pieces of Gothic literature are sisters. And so... Right. Picking a book isn't just picking a book. It's picking a sister. Yeah. In this very fraught, famously dramatic family. Mm. So what do you know about the Brontes? Oh, you know, they had a ne'er-do-well brother who sucked away their fortunes, so they had to become writers in order to make ends meet. Uh, and their dad is like this aloof person who's not really engaged with the family. And they lived in like this romantic personage in northern England and moors and dark cloudy landscapes and something about Whitby Abbey. No, oh, that's Dracula. <laughs> that's Dracula. <laughs> but yeah, that, that ambiance, right? Yeah, this right. Moody, yeah. windswept moors, and troubled sisters scribbling away in the dark. Yeah. Dramatic and romantic and depressing. Right, yeah. There's the Bronte mythology, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Now, you talked about the brother, you talked about the sisters, you talked about the father. Yeah. Who's missing in the ah. story? <laughs> Where's the mom? <laughs> well, she's dead, isn't she? <laughs> yes. She's missing from this mythology. Yeah. And we have done several stories on the podcast about women who are mostly famous for being moms. Mm, yeah. Mariah Bronte is famous... For not being there. 
Mm. Her absence is the most important thing about her story, the way that it's been told. She is Mm. the missing mom whose absence leads her remarkable children to the life that they eventually lead. Ah. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. So Mariah Branwell's life is an emptiness out of which springs the next generation's genius. Our guest thought that was rubbish. (laughs) Sharon Wright, who we have spoken Ah, to before on our episodes about Sophie Blanchard and uh, Lily Cove in our Mm. Halloween episode, author of Balloonomania Bells, Mm -hmm. is the author of a new biography of... Mariah Bronte, the mother of the Brontes, hmm. that is fantastic. Wow. I've read cool. it three times already. I love it. Wow. I'm Sharon Wright. I'm the author of The Mother of the Brontes, When Mariah Met Patrick, the first biography of Mariah Branwell Bronte. my reason for writing this book is I am from Bradford. I am Bradford born like the Brontes and I grew up with the Brontes as these kind of unfathomable figures really. I wasn't really part of that world that would have studied them. So I came to us as an adult. This idea that there wasn't enough on that was the received wisdom and I just set out to decide whether that was true. And when Sharon Wright gets interested in something, she gets interested and you cannot stop her (laughs) and she was going to find out if there was something when i first wondered aloud why no one has ever written a biography of mariah the answer came swiftly there isn't enough on her i bet there is a thought if you grab your pen and your notebook and go looking properly surprise surprise there was that (laughs) And this biography has been embraced by the Bronte communities, both academic and popular, which is almost impossible to do. People are serious about their Brontes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it still surprises me how people have their version of each Bronte, and it's absolutely unassailable. So making everybody happy really says something. Sure. It is very academically rigorous and accessible and delightful. Mariah was born in 1783 in Penzance in Cornwall, which is in the very far west of England. She was born into a wealthy merchant family in the smartest street in town. She was raised amongst the dentists, so she had a life of a, of a young society woman. She was a contemporary of Jane Austen. She would have had access to the Penzance Ladies Book Club. There were assembly room balls at the top of her road. The assembly rooms were actually built by a member of her extended family. And she was educated, she was part of an important family, and she was very much a Cornish woman as well, who grew up amongst myths and legends of, of Cornwall as much as the Enlightenment era 
manifestations such as the book clubs, the science, the radical thinking that, of course, was would have been sweeping a cosmopolitan port like that. Ha! Huh. Down at the very, very end of Cornwall. It's the last stop before the ocean. Yeah, and it <laughs> at the time was seen by London or much of the rest of England as a sort of rural backwater, but was actually an incredibly cosmopolitan town because it's linked to the world by the ocean. Yeah. This is a major shipping center. Mm-hmm. And it's the exact same era as Poldark, if people have seen that series. Yeah. Cornwall in the late 1700s. Yeah, this is Poldark. Mariah is the eighth of 12 children, five of whom are already dead when she is born. Mm. Sharon Wright is excellent at giving you context without whacking you over the head with it. For example, finally, after the sixth child dies, Mariah's mother takes or is allowed a break from childbearing. Uh. Her father is a church warden in the Evangelical Anglican Church. So he is a a very high standing within the city, within the community, within the church. He's a bigwig. He's a bigwig. And the whole family are exceptional. They excel at everything they do. Mm. As rich people often did in the 1700s. Yeah. (laughs) This is the age of John Wesley. Yeah. The religious reformer and the Branwell family were close friends with John Wesley. They were very devoted to religious reform and very involved in this church reform, evangelical religion, which means a very different thing for our U.S. listeners. Yeah. Evangelical in the U.S. is very different than evangelical in Europe and, and England. But it and has its roots in this movement. It's a, yeah. Yeah. the Great Awakening. Right. And it's this time of huge amounts of religious and social and political upheaval. Yeah. This offshoot that her family is is very invested in will eventually become Methodism. Mm-hmm. But at this point, that split has not happened yet. Her father is also, as Sharon Wright was the first person to discover, a smuggler. Oh. Ah, well, that's how you get rich in Penzance in the 1700s. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody in Cornwall is smuggling. <laughs> right. And and it, the Napoleonic War is going on. There's no navy nearby. Mm-hmm. There are tunnels that run all over the place under Penzance, uh, up from the coast to the Merchant Row. Smuggling is the regional pastime of Cornwall. Right. It is a proud tradition. And, and Penzance, especially down there at the very end, there's so many shipwrecks around there. Right. And yeah. the dangerous all- waters mean lots to harvest. Yes, exactly. And good excuses if ships just happen to disappear. Mm-hmm. Spent ages up to my ears in the archives. So when I found this evidence that he had, had, he had been tangled up with A, notorious smugglers, and B, the revenue men, everyone else found it absolutely fascinating. Because it, when you talk about the bronches, I mean, it's like you say, it's romantic, it's dramatic. It's a family secret. It's that they're not all plastic saints. 
I don't think he spoke to his personality at all. I just think it spoke to his, his life and his era and his profession. Just one person in particular said, oh, well, he wasn't a bad man. He was a churchman. I said, I'm not saying he's a bad man or a good man. I'm saying he was a businessman. Smuggling was absolutely endemic, especially in coastal areas during the Napoleonic era, because there was no... A, taxes were off the scale, and there was no militia, really, to enforce it properly because they were constantly at war with France or policing other bits of the, the empire. But everyone was involved, from the aristocracy down to the miners. I mean, it was fairly industrial scale. All these tunnels had to be built, so it was quite likely to be moonlighting tin mines. If you're a merchant in Penzance in the 18th century, you're a smuggler. <laughs> Mariah is a Cornish woman to the core. Myths and legends, fairies and romance and mm. evangelical religious reform and social duty and science and industry and progressive politics <laughs> and radical thinking hand in hand with ghosts and pixies. Mariah was both a child of the Enlightenment and of keeping the candlelight on. It's a really remarkable and unique worldview that 18th century Cornish people have. And she brings that to her family. And it's glaringly obvious when you huh. look at her children where they're getting this world that they write and that they put into the things that they do. Those of us who grow up watching and reading Jane Austen know this is, can be a very difficult time to be a daughter and that your fortunes may rise and fall based on the whims of the men around you. Mm -hmm. She was um, a woman of independent means up to a point. She wasn't rich, but she had an independent income from her father's will, which allowed her to have, again, a, a comfortable life. She said to Patrick Bronte, in one of her letters, that I was perfectly my own mistress when she was there. So she was used to being consulted about things, about family matters. She was a trusted member of the family. She can rule her own life. She doesn't have to marry if she doesn't want to. She can make her own decisions and run her own establishment and not be bossed around. And when she eventually does marry at age 29, which is old for this time period, again, another sign that she didn't have to if she didn't want to. She loved her life. She loved Penzance. She loved the coast. She loved her family. She loved her social circle. She loved her book club. And then in 1812, her aunt and uncle opened up a new boarding school in Yorkshire. This is a free school for the children of evangelical ministers and eventually is then opened up to the children of the poor. Anyone can enroll at this school. So her aunt Jane and Uncle John Fennell went to open this school in a converted manor house up in um, West Yorkshire. And poor Aunt Jane, we think, couldn't cope. Well, she couldn't cope. There's plenty of evidence of that, really. But <laughs> she wrote to Penzance and asked if um, Mariah would go and help, be a sort of junior matron, come companion to her. So Mariah, an incredibly courageous thing to do back then, traveled 400 miles from Penzance to Apley Bridge in West Yorkshire. And they were very, very different places. It was very subtropical, beautiful places. She lived in Cornwall. 
just going to a very wild, bleak part of the country that was just starting to industrialize. So everything was changing. 400 miles is not to be sneezed at. She either went partly by sea or entirely by stagecoach, and I spent a long time charting that. And that was when highwaymen were rice, stagecoaches were crashing. It was an incredibly arduous thing to do, and she did it. Shipwrecks, as you pointed out, very common. This is, as you showed us in the episode on Caroline Herschel, ships wreck. Mm-hmm. Stagecoaches tip over. Yeah. It's incredibly dangerous right. to and try it, to travel in and, England. And it'll take weeks and weeks of right. fear and pain If you and make risk. it at all. <laughs> yeah. And shoved into a highly overcrowded stagecoach with mm-hmm. a whole bunch of strangers. Mm-hmm. And by overcrowded, I mean standing room only, sitting on each other's laps. Yeah. Poor people get to hang on to the outside of yeah. the stagecoach for 14 hours a day. Yeah. And there are articles from this time of the stagecoach arrives at its destination only to find that everyone in the cheap seats outside is dead and has frozen to the stagecoach. This is a very unusual choice for a privileged, wealthy woman to undertake. But she does. And it is while she is working at this school for a short period of time to help out her aunt and uncle that she meets the school's new examiner, Patrick Bronte. Hmm. Patrick Bronte is the Irish Anglican curate of a nearby parish. Oh. But he is a rising star. And Mariah's aunt and uncle, especially feel pretty confident that these two might hit it off. Mm. And they do. And when they met, it was an absolute love match. I mean, from the beginning, her letters express absolute passion for him. A real meeting of minds, a real meeting of hearts. And they were married. I mean, they were, they, we think they were engaged about August 1812. And this is shortly after the Luddite rebellions, which is all happening on Patrick's doorstep over in Hartshead. So it's an incredibly tumultuous time nationally and internationally. But also for them, they were married on the 29th of December, 1812. This is peak Georgian romance novel drama. This is (laughs) love and fear. And he said he loved me yesterday, but what if he doesn't now? (laughs) Just the most dramatic soap opera of a relationship you can imagine. (laughs) And it's from this period of their relationship, these very few months between meeting and marrying, that we have most of what we have from Mariah Branwell's writings. These are letters that she sent to Patrick that he treasured for the rest of his life and that reveal a really fascinating character. In, in most of the Bronte scholarship that's happened before, Mariah Bronte is just sort of alluded to as this shadowy character that we don't know much about. And the implication is given of, again, this, this mood that we like to impose mm-hmm. on the Brontes of dark, yeah, brooding, gloomy. Right. And she was the opposite of that. Huh. She was a bright, vivacious, witty, funny, interested, 
deep thinker. She loved life. Mm. She was enthusiastic about everything and she was passionate in her feelings. That These letters are almost painful sometimes. And we don't have his responses to her, but we do have her responses to his responses, which make it clear that these were also extremely flirtatious <laughs> letters that are being sent to a, a, an Anglican priest. <laughs> <laughs> And that he felt absolutely as passionately devoted as she did is clear from a, their life, but also from many of the other things he wrote later in their life. Hmm. They just fell totally headlong in love. Hmm. And when he proposed and asked her to stay here in wildest Yorkshire, she has to decide... Everyone liked him a lot, and he was even seen as a hero because he would stand up to bullies in, in really unusual ways. There's a procession of Sunday school children happening, and there is an adult man who is lying in wait for them, ready to beat them up, and Patrick Bronte walks up, grabs him by the collar, throws him across the road, <laughs> and then just continues walking past him as if nothing happened. Wow! And as Sharon Wright tells us, it is the subject of conversation in and about Dewsbury for weeks. <laughs> but the word that keeps coming around about him is peculiar. By the way, Bronte trivia. Patrick was born into a family called either Brunty or Prunty. There are different spellings all through his family. When he got to Cambridge... He announced his name to the man who was recording arrivals. And because of his Irish accent, presumably, it was um, misspelled as Branty. So when Patrick saw this mistake later, instead of saying, no, it's Brunty or Prunty, whatever he's using, he went with Bronte. There's lots of theories. Was it a reference to Nelson? Was it one of the Greek gods or goddesses, I think, of thunder? For whatever reason, Patrick took this opportunity to make that part of his reinvention as a, a clergyman, as a scholar, as someone who was starting afresh. Wow. It's just That's a made up identity. So funny how you could just do that back then. Right. Just new name. I think it was a change that he knew would help him in the high society oh, Anglican sure. communities that he was hoping to yeah. become a priest in. He was very pious and devout and very ambitious. Mm. And it did help him. Patrick Bronte has a career that Patrick Prunty, <laughs> Irish son of a farmhand, probably would not mm. have had. Mm. I think it's really interesting that he just took that opportunity and ran with it, really. That was Patrick Oliver. Took every opportunity and just carried on steaming on, didn't he? <laughs> Mariah Bronte never went home again. Patrick and Mariah marry on the 29th of December, 1812. They take up residence in... Liver Sedge. <laughs> Liver Sedge. In Yorkshire. And start having children. Mariah was 30 by now. 
Patrick wrote her a lovely poem. Come Mariah, let us walk in the morning air for her birthday. So they had baby Mariah, named after the mother, and then they had baby Elizabeth, named after her aunt. They are smack in the middle of the Luddite rebellions. Oh. Mm. Now this is, for our listeners who might know that word, Luddite, we tend to use that word to mean people who don't own cell phones. Yeah. Or, or hate technology, but... The very short version of the Luddite Rebellion is this is a mass rebellion against industrialization, mm-hmm. against the loss of jobs and crafting, craftsmanship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that that the Industrial Revolution is bringing about, and it's an incredibly violent, tumultuous time to be here in Yorkshire. This is happening right all around them. Obviously, it's way more complicated than this. Uh, If our listeners want to understand more of this background of what was happening during this time in context, there's a fantastic short history of Regency England called Our Tempestuous Day by Carolee Erickson that's wonderful. It's very accessible and entertaining, and I highly recommend it. This is one of my favorite, most confusing things about how most people, at least especially most people in the U.S., I think, think about the Regency era. We have somehow convinced ourselves that Georgian England, or at least Jane Austen's England, was prim and proper and boring and sort of proto-Victorian, which is hilarious in the context of what Georgian England was actually like on every level. Readers of of (laughs) Regency romances may be closer to the mark in terms of the type of society that this was. The British government is living in absolute terror of the French Revolution, Mark II. And so the entire country is sort of under this martial law control of these militias stationed anywhere where uprisings might be likely to happen. Yeah. It was a wild time, a wild time that the Victorians reacted against. And that's why the Victorians are so buttoned up because the Georgian era was... So the Prince Regent (laughs) had a good time. Eventually, the Bronte family moves to Thornton. And in Thornton is where she gave birth to Charlotte, then Bramwell, then Emily, then Anne Bronte. We're very happy there. And that's where she made friends with Elizabeth Firth, who was a diarist of the time. And I spent a lot of time researching that time because I think that's when she probably did her writing. She was a prolific rhetor writer during that time. There's nothing to suggest she wouldn't have carried on doing that. This is probably the happiest period of Mariah Bronte's life. She has a strong social circle here. She's very involved in the religious life of the city. There are just a few pieces of her writing left. But for the Brontes, you know, their mother put pen to paper as well as their father. It was normal for the, the Bronte sisters and Bramwell and Patrick to, that women had opinions and they wrote them down and they, they wrote them for publication and they took a stand and, you know, they had an they had a opinion. I just think all that is really quite formative. It says a lot about Patrick as well as Mariah. We have one tract that she wrote for an evangelical publication that Patrick kept, and it's an argument sort of differentiating between the deserving and undeserving poor. 
it's not my favorite oh. argument. And especially mm -hmm. now, it's easy for us to look back and, and think this is terrible. Whatever you think about the content, like, that's kind of irrelevant, really. The fact that she was writing, I think, is very formative in the Bronte story. It's also fascinating because she's a passionate reader. We have her books and we have her lists of her books. And we know that Charlotte inherited her mother's magazine collections, which again, now sounds weird, but was normal. You would bind all of your issues of literary magazines and these become books. And mm -hmm. she, mm -hmm. these are some of the only things she brought with her from Cornwall to Yorkshire. When Mariah Branwell writes home that she is going to marry Patrick Bronte and stay in Yorkshire, her family starts assembling her things to send her and also gifts, of course, for her wedding. They send it all by sea. Demonstrated the perils of this journey because the ship carrying all of her earthly possessions and all of the gifts from her family for her wedding sinks on the way and uh -huh. she... She loses the wedding veil her sister made for her, the majority of her books, her clothes, her family's gifts. All she has are the things that she brought with her on the original short-term visit. The books which she couldn't bear to be parted from. And those include these bound magazines. Mm -mm. Right. We know what Mariah read since she was in these book clubs and she was one of the founders of the Lending Library in Penzance. So we have lists of what she read, what she loved, shaped her point of view. She knows poverty only secondhand. The only experience she has with poverty is this romanticized, religiousized view that sees poverty as romantic and righteous. So this idea of good poor and bad poor is not just her idea, it's pretty common. But the fact that she's concerning herself with the poor at all is very important and progressive for this time. It, this is a very social reforming movement and caring for the poor matters to her, even if she is maybe not as enlightened as we might hope, looking backwards. She's engaging. And she is modeling for these little girls who will grow up to become some of the most famous writers in the English language that women write. Mm-hmm. She was very pious, and she was the wife of an Anglican clergyman. And her writing, such as it is, expresses that often. But it wasn't all she was. It was all this other independent thinking, all this wit, all this interest in the world going on as well. I find that complex, interesting. Bronte fans will know that there is a long tradition of Patrick Bronte being cast as a very abusive, bullying husband. Much different now. There's been a real huge reassessment of Patrick, but he was, thanks to Mrs. Gaskell, he was very demonized for decades and decades as this eccentric old tyrant. And he might have been a grumpy old man. I'm not saying he wasn't, but he was certainly a very driven, loving, passionate husband and father and a very enlightened one, really. For the time, he gave his, his children, his daughters in particular, the opportunity to have a life of the mind. And of course he became. I'm sure he was quite peculiar. That's the word that comes up about him, bless him. The men in the Bronte sisters' books are weird. 
they're not the same as anyone else was writing. They're not gothic mm. novel men. Even they, they're, you know, yeah. Wuthering Heights is the the peak gothic novel. But Heathcliff mm-hmm. is not a gothic novel hero or villain. Huh. Rochester is messy and in between in ways that was really unusual mm-hmm. for this time. And and while none of them are great guys from our modern perspective, right? Please don't model your relationship yeah. on Heathcliff and Catherine. <laughs> but I think that the impulse to say, look at all these terrible men that the Bronte girls wrote. It's proof their father was a monster is that same thing mm. that we often do to female writers, that male writers create works of art and female writers narrate their experiences and that we Mm. we try to make everything a woman writes autobiographical in ways Mm -hmm. that we never do to men we nobody says oh hannibal lecter thomas harris's father must have been a nightmare right we we say that's (laughs) a wildly creative work of art and then when anne Bronte was a very little baby um, they moved to Howard, to the parsonage, where we always associate um, the Bronte story as, as unfolding. This is Bronte land now. This is the place that is most associated with them. It's here that the Bronte legend will center. And it's here where her children will grow up. And it's here that Mariah Bronte will die. Shortly after moving here, mm. a year after Anne Bronte is born... Mariah is diagnosed with uterine cancer and mm. has an absolutely agonizing seven months death. Oh. Patrick writes about it later in ways that are just heartrending and talks about the this was the most pain that he has ever seen a human being in. And he's a priest, so he has seen all the deaths, right? Yeah. He's there for right. all the deaths. One of the things I was looking at was um, Patrick's medical books, and they're just heartbreaking because he's, as a parson, people would have come to him for legal and medical advice that they couldn't afford. So he would have had to, part of the job then, to be very clued up in order to give generalized advice. And he was, he would take, he would write in the margins all his sort of findings from, you know, if he tried a certain cure, the cancer chapter, he's written things like, not sure this works or, you know, it's worth going. Not in those words, of course, but I mean, that little from Mariah and him just desperately trying everything. Different treatments that they've tried of cures that didn't work, mm. desperately trying to find anything that will save Mariah as she is slipping further and further away. He hires a nurse Aww. to nurse her during the day, but he is nursing her all night. And he would get to the look, try and keep life normal for his very little children, go out and do parish duties. I mean, who knows what's going through his mind then? During the period in which they knew Mariah was dying, he presided over 70 funerals, knowing that the next one might be hers. He writes that for Mm. months he was sure that the next day would be her last Mm. I can't imagine 
And there's they're also contending with this idea, which was very, very strong at this point in evangelical circles, especially of the good death, that you should not be afraid of death. Death is just passing over to the other side and you can do it nobly and calmly and in full faith and never doubting. And that's the goal, but it's also an expectation of a good Christian and especially a good proto-Methodist Anglican. And Mariah did not have a good death. She had an agonizing, appalling death. Mm. And he's struggling to make peace with that. And what we yeah. know is that she used to, she would cry out, oh, my poor children, oh, my poor children, because she knew she was leaving six very little children, her husband, and she knew she was dying, and it took a long time. So this idea that she would have such a rock-solid belief that it was God's will and all for the best, I, I find that difficult to understand. I don't talk about it in the book particularly because that would be subjective, but I do analyse Patrick's take on it, what we know of her condition what we know she said and, and eyewitness accounts on the time. And it's just horrible. And I just think it was heartbroken. And he took on a nurse to nurse her through the day, but he nursed her himself through the night. And just, I mean, the despair of that bedroom, you can't imagine, can you? She was so much crying. And this is the formative years for Charlotte and Emily. These memories that Charlotte mm. especially talks about being five years old. And that is how she was five years old when all of these things happened that she talks about. And that's the year her mother died. It cemented in their brains. Mm. Mariah Bramwell was born in a house in a room looking over the graveyard. And she died in a room looking over another one. Ah. She grew up looking out into a graveyard and she died looking out into another one. And I thought that was such a clarity. And especially when you think when Mariah was born, the 11th of 12 children, and her mother, she literally had five children safe in their beds and five others in their graves already. So here you are with your 11th baby wondering, I, don't, I honestly don't know where this is going to end, this one. Very traumatic. And of course we can only look at the bare facts of that chronology, but we can, I'm a mother, so I can't imagine it. Ellen Nussowicz, who was one of Charlotte Bronte's great friends, says at one point that, you know, you could always hear the chink chink of the stonemason outside the parsonage windows. That was one of the things that, when it, I totted it up and I realized that he conducted 70 funerals, I mean, proximity, he is in the graveyard, and at the top window lies his wife who's dying in the most pain he's ever seen anyone die. This spectre of death is always there, but especially it explains, you know, it, this. it's fashionable to cast the Brontes as obsessed with death. But mm -hmm. if they were, what absolutely good reasons they have. <laughs> Patrick Bronte eventually... Yeah becomes one of the people who is really instrumental in changing that and getting the, the sanitation cleaned up and bringing the tuberculosis rate especially down because mm. all of his children, except one, die of tuberculosis. Like, he sees firsthand how awful this is. Wow. I think the, the children <laughs> of churchmen have a very intimate acquaintance with death. 
that many people don't have yeah. even at that time. And of course, it's going to feature prominently in their thinking. But also, Mariah's books that stay with these children. Charlotte reads them obsessively. Emily reads them obsessively. And it is her gothic novels huh. that inspires her daughter's work. It's not Yorkshire. They place these things in Yorkshire, but it is her inherent Cornwallness and their father's inherent mm. Irishness that brings in this supernatural fairies and magic and demons and hauntings and science and enlightenment into these really unusual and startling mixes that we have in, especially in Emily and Charlotte's books. Hmm. Analyzing that end of her life, which was then totally forgotten because the Bronte stories largely starts when she dies, doesn't it? When actually I think it was so formative, it tells us so much about, especially the Gothic fiction, which I really, really investigated, which Mariah and Elizabeth loved reading their Gothic shockers in the, the ladies' magazine. And we know that Charlotte inherited them because she writes about it. And of course, from that mind comes a mad woman in the attic. You know, her sister writes, Wuthering Heights. You don't get much more Gothic, do you? I mean, we're all a blend of the then and the now, aren't we? Our own individual past. But the, the legacy of our parents and those that went before us. One day in the autumn or winter succeeding Mrs. Bronte's death, Charlotte came to her nurse, wild and white with the excitement of having seen a fairy standing by baby Anne's cradle. When the two ran back to the nursery, Charlotte flying on ahead, treading softly not to frighten the beautiful visitant away, no one was there besides a baby, sleeping sweetly in the depths of her forenoon nap. Charlotte's transfixed, her eyes wandered incredulously around the room. But she was here just now, she insisted. I really and truly did see her. And no argument or coaxing could shake her from the belief. She was absolutely formative in not just her children's work, but in their worldview, in the way they thought about things, in what the expectations were and the idea that they could write when they needed money. Anne becomes a governess for a short yeah. period and then writes an expose that rocks society of what it's actually like to be a governess. Yeah. Truly remarkable woman has this indelible stamp on not just this family, of this remarkable family, but on this place, on her society. And then she disappears. She literally vanishes from history. 200 years. She's just this tragic figure. Even at the parsonage, she's referred to as a shadowy figure. And I just became really preoccupied with her thinking, these six extraordinary children, I mean, not just ones that survived, but Mariah, the eldest, was, was an exceptional child by all accounts. There's no literary siblings like the Missa. There's no genetic puzzle there like the Brontes. And half of that comes from Mariah. So it was a real quest to understand her lives. And she'd had an extraordinary life. I mean, what, what a life she packed into the 38 years. For 200 years, 
She has been in absence. Hopefully, Mariah Bronte is a presence. Hmm. For 200 years, she's been in absence. The dead wife of the famous reverend. The dead mother of world-famous authors. A life eclipsed by the genius of her children. So I do not approach the family with an air of reverence, but fascination. My Brontes are not the famous ones. Mine are the before they were famous ones. The Bronte backstory, I suppose. The prequel. Huge thanks to Sharon Wright. If you would like to learn more about Mariah Bronte or find Sharon Wright's books, links, other information, all of that is at our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. If you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, just click on the donate link on our website and find great rewards like trading cards, cross-stitch patterns, and more. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music for this episode was provided by Amanda Setlick-Wilson and Half Pelican. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.